0: I'm Natasha, and I'm ready. And together we are Syllogism, a science, culture, and philosophy challenge podcast on the edge of chaos. This week's challenge was to read Simulacra and Simulation by 20th century French philosopher and cultural theorist Jean Baudrillard. Enjoy! I'm queer. I'm here. I'm queer.
1: My, I have my insignia. Uh, very good morning. <laughs>
0: he had. He was yeah. on empty. He
1: <laughs> yeah. was almost on empty. So uh, good morning and uh, <laughs> cheers.
0: <laughs> Welcome to the season finale of Syllogism, <laughs> pronounced syllogism.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Oh my god.
1: Oh my. So, uh, anyway. Um,
0: Two seconds also. my mom's birthday, too. So, happy birthday oh, yeah. to my mother. Nice. <laughs> the bitch is in fucking Florence today. So, I like how we talk about my mom, like, every episode.
1: Oh, <laughs> 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 uh, wait. Um, um, hold on. Paging
0: Dr. Freud. Seriously, paging <laughs> Dr. Freud. Like, I want my mom to listen to the podcast so bad, I have to talk about her every episode. So, to, to finish season one, we thought it would be super fun to get lost in post-modernity or post-structuralism, whatever you want to call this. Technically, the terms would be interchangeable. <laughs> <laughs> That's the point of postmodernism. That's the point of post-structuralism. And so we're going to talk about Jean Baudrillard's uh, seminal work, Simulacra and simulation. And uh, it was a doozy of a challenge because, first of all, I, I felt there's a lot of background knowledge you need to have about the way that postmodern and poststructuralist and deconstructivist philosophy has come into play. That if you don't have this backgrounder, the language is almost incomprehensible. And as a scientist and an engineer coming at this, even though we're pretty creative, our linear thinking is, is dominant in our minds. And so reading this critical analysis of reality was wild.
1: Baudrillard really was a poet. Uh, The problem with that in his writing in particular, I think, is both that the language has a pretty high hurdle for entry, but all, and also that he mixes metaphors a lot and you have to understands the ways in which he's using them in order to get the visuals that he's trying to leverage to describe what he sees as the the disjointedness of what is real and how things are simulated. And that's not easy because a lot of the passages are very dense. The sentences are multi-clausal to a fault. I would almost say in part that's designed to take a linear mind like yours and mine would be when we normally think about systems in what we think of as the real world and pull them out of that so that you can see that underneath it is something much more mysterious.
0: I would agree. It's by design. The entire text describes the point of post-structuralism, that words can have multiple meanings. They're different signifiers. And I think this is an important precursor to understanding Baudrillard or Derrida or any, any of these postmodern thinkers, you have to understand that language is so malleable that, for example, an example of a signifier and the signified and you know, a sign as a whole would be brett. So we're talking about...
1: Thank you very much. <laughs>
0: so if, if I say brett, that <laughs> is a signifier for you, but you are so much more than just brett. And you might not even be Brett all the time. You might be a curly-headed fuck. That might be. <laughs> so, so the sign of Brett can be signified by curly-headed fuck or by Brett. Conversely, curly-headed fuck could also describe John C. Riley, and it could also describe. <laughs> it could describe any number of things, and Brett could also describe any number of things. So this is how post-structuralism is trying to outline the infinite meaning of everything, that nothing can really be nailed down to an objective, hard-coded sign. And so this is what is inherent in the language of Baudrillard, and this is exactly his point.
1: I, I, I agree. And so that makes knowing things and being assured that in knowing that you're talking about anything that is known and shared at least in the way that he's using language and the way that he's trying to make your mind almost fall into a kind of schizoid (laughs) sense of selflessness and and a a fractured multi-universal way, it it, it makes it so that we don't even know when we're reading the text, how much of the text itself is supposed to reflect what is real. You're lost in a poetry that is almost inscrutable. Right, right. And I enjoy it for that reason, but it also was uh, very, very frustrating, in part because I had to get past my bias for for even poetry that I would think of as more linear. But I sent you a, a story called Paper Lantern. If you look at the way he structures this story, though nonlinear, he has layers and layers of metaphor that all feed into each other to construct a reality that shows that there's a central theme, and all these themes feed into something that make it so much more meaningful. And I think uh, Baudrillard is doing the opposite. He's taking these ideas about how to think about reality and deconstructing theme entirely, such that while you're trying to create meaning yourself in reading the text, you're struggling to find coherence.
0: That's exactly the point. It's deconstructed. It's yeah. post-structural is is the is the is the idea here. The point is to, I think, to occlude meaning. The text itself is representative of the point. It's overwrought. It's like a 3D eye puzzle, I think, that you start mm. seeing other things in it that maybe weren't in it to begin with you're you're looking so hard for something that you're like oh is that it is that it is that the thing that i see and it's elusive and i think that is the point i mean maybe it's not the absolute intent the intent behind post structuralists is to liberate people and give them agency to overcome hierarchy and overcome the hard coded or perceived hard coded parts of reality but in fact, I think it's it's paralyzed them. This was meant to give people agency. But thinking about possibilities without boundaries is paralyzing. Yes. I don't recommend anybody who's looking for more freedom to read this <laughs> because it's going to cage you,
1: I think. Well, it, it, it does. And you see this in every aspect of uh, like, so any aspect of something like critical theory, you have a perspective, you here are your very well prescribed series of interlocking paradigms. And this is how you must see the world. And so in that way, it's not freeing at all. In fact, I was listening to a podcast called uh, econ talk. It's like one of my favorites. And he was talking about a book about the nature of curiosity, and how there's a difference between solving puzzles and how solving puzzles themselves are, is anti-curious. So once you come up with a solution uh, to a puzzle, when you're learning anything, you already think it's solved and you kind of move on and the depth of your understanding is resolved in this, uh, in an erasure of curiosity. But if you approach things with a, a sense of the mysterious like the world has these infinite layers of depths and I, though that I know this and I've solved something or, or come to something doesn't mean that it's resolved. It just means that there's another layer and another layer and another layer. I've experienced something like the mysterious that is almost like what you would see in, in the religious, let's say. And that happens in science as well. But if you adopt critical theory, you're basically just solving a puzzle and this book wants to give you the pieces to solve a puzzle and simultaneously maintain a sense of the mysterious. And I think that it's so difficult to get through in its attempt to remain mysterious that um, it actually shuts you down and makes it just a puzzle. When you look at postmodernism, when you look at critical theory, it seems like you're solving something mysterious, but the goal is to arrive at something that gives you the answers and you can get them really easily
0: interesting i was watching a youtube video on zipf's law zipf's law for mm-hmm. an effective altruism f- program i'm doing and okay. it's talking basically about fat tailed curves and one of the things i found most interesting is the english language falls on a distribution of zipf's law so the word the is the most commonly used word and then of after that and it's inversely proportional so the interesting thing about this curve and the frequency of use is that the word knowing comes before the word mystery in use. So we want to have things we know more than we want to have mystery. And I think that's why we've constructed all these deconstructions and ways of thinking and ideologies to explain shit.
1: So this makes sense in, I think, a kind of Petersonian way. Essentially, uh, Peterson kind of makes the point that in order to be, you know, an organism that has any real efficacy in the world, you have to be operating somewhere at it's the edge of chaos.
0: You know? uh, no, wait, yeah. no, <laughs> saying all kinds of shit that I need to refute. Like Peterson's not the first person to hate Baudrillard and postmodern thinkers, but okay. No, oh,
1: no, no, no. But I, but, but he's basically saying, look, you need to be operating within enough order, so you need to, you need to know and have certainty. Uh, Before you can arrive at something like mystery. And, And the reason for that is that the stress of being in perpetual mystery will, in some ways, be paralytic to an organism and to a society because there is no capacity to explore where you are fearful. I think the distribution follows what would be a rational path for the survival of the species. You must know something to then be willing to explore a little bit and then ultimately expand the parameters of what is known so that you can be more and more comfortable. And then like with our species become dominance, not just maybe within an ecosystem, like most, uh, most other species, but for us, our dominance is planetary.
0: I agree. I agree. And I think these postmodernist thinkers have their own foothold and that is their, their little way of knowing, which if they were really following their own thought, then that itself is an objective statement that everything is subjective. And so much like science, this postmodern ideology is self-referential. And I've never really heard anybody, I've I've never heard people from either camp talking about how either either ideology is self-referential. And the thing that bothers me is that I got into science because I had a lot of questions, but I feel like everybody in science just wants the answer that they already think is true. As a young scientist, I was inspired to take some new idea and, and rip it apart and see if it fits and if it doesn't throw it away. But I think as time goes on as a scientist, you become attached to these things because you have to achieve In your career, and you can't just be ripping things apart and throwing them away. You have to hold on to something for dear life. And God forbid somebody tears your finding apart. Oh, it's the worst. But science itself is self referential. And that's why I left science, because I was like, hold on, we're not going to be able to figure everything out using science. And nobody taught me this. Nobody came into my little freshman year biology 101 course and was like, hey, listen. This is one way of knowing. And I wasn't required to take philosophy course or ontology or epistemology or any of this stuff, which I think everyone should be required to take, like blow people's minds out and then slowly feed them back information because Mm -hmm. (laughs) we need to go through a radical shift in how we train people because all these scientists are coming up through their careers. And one of my dear friends, who's been a scientist for 25, 30 years, I was like, do you know what scientism is? And she was like, no, she had no clue. And I had to explain to her that scientism is the belief that science can solve everything. And she's like, yeah, I believe that. And I'm like, okay, well, then riddle me this, Batman. How do you know science is the best way of knowing? And she was like, well, I guess it's just the evidence speaks for itself. I'm like, yeah, but it's self-referential. You can't use the scientific method to test science versus intuition because you're skewing it in favor of the scientific method. And she was like, "Hmm. oh, My God, I don't know if I'm a scientist anymore. Like a a scientist should probably look at this more critically and go, oh, fuck. So I think people aren't ready for this. They're not ready to have their ideology completely torn down because they need that foothold like what you said.
1: Yeah, well, and it sounds to me like you might actually be a kind of scientific shaman, a, a kind a of
0: scientific shaman. New <laughs> teacher a, just a, dropped
1: a unity, a unity of opposites. <laughs>
0: Period. Period.
1: But I would say this: the difference between most things that would be considered way of ways of knowing and science is that while it may not arrive at something like ultimate truth, science is. Science self-referentiality allows it to also be self-critical, and it's that self-criticality that allows it to say, okay, I've used this method, I've come across this um, as I've tried to come up with a logical concatenation of events, and maybe I've uh, interpolated all this data, I can see whether or not something works. I can try again. I can reformulate. And from there, maybe once I have enough data, I can then begin to extrapolate maybe into the next layer of the mysterium that is uh, something real. And so it may not be the best way of getting there that will ever be determined. But in terms of causal sequences and making some statements about how things happen and maybe even getting to something like why, it's going to be better than anything we've come up with previously, like you know, shamanism and, and, and so forth. And so believing that it's possible to get somewhere from it and using it to both reinforce itself and tear itself apart is probably the single greatest leap in a cognitive tool that we've ever come up with.
0: I would agree. I think there, that's your, your criticism and your, I guess it would be support at the same time is accurate that we can question things. There are no answers that cannot be questioned. That's why I'm a scientist. I think science is kind of the best way of chipping away at what we can know, but I do think there are things we can't know. There has to be. And so while I, love and hate Noam Chomsky. His, his criticism of postmodern thinkers it aligns with mine. When, it, what he says about postmodern thinkers is, is, is a feather in scientists cap, not that scientists need any more feathers in their fucking cap. So Noam Chomsky says- Most respected uh, French intellectuals and run through what they say about science. And You know, it is so embarrassing that you kind of cringe when you read it. He's saying that (laughs) they basically just want to be like scientists. They see these physicists getting all these awards for saying what they say and these beautiful, elegant expressions and the complicated things that they uncover. cover he's saying well postmodernists are just like well i can i can be complicated too and they come <laughs> up with this prose to describe the universe
1: there's a a, a thinker that i've mentioned a uh, a couple of times i think on this podcast already his name is uh, christopher langen and at some point he was tested to be the highest uh iq uh, in uh the united states at least um and this is nobody
0: fucking him. cares about his yeah. iq
1: Anyway, so the point is, he comes up with this idea of the cognitive theoretical model of the universe, and he describes what amounts to a self-contained, self-processing language. And so he thinks that language, uh, and specifically like math- mathematics, is a way of describing the universe that is so total that in its self-referentiality, it approaches an explanation for, for God. Language and mathematics are both uh, ways of describing reality and that language, if used precisely, approaches mathematics in terms of its uh, explanatory power. And the problem with uh, a lot of this postmodern language is that it's doing the the exact opposite. It is deliberately working with imprecision and obscurantism to pull itself away from what would be the explanatory power inherent in language that could make it become more like mathematics. And so in this way, I think we have a kind of Disjuncture between what physicists are doing and what they're lauded for, and what postmodernists are doing and what they are well lauded for by mostly just acolytes who probably are suffering from a <laughs> of incomprehension. Because to read this and think that it's really profound is, I think, to demonstrate your illiteracy. <laughs> that's, that, that's, that's my that's my statement. <laughs>
0: I think your statement, your statement is funny, but I completely disagree. I completely disagree. I think you you used a word uh, previously when we were talking about this and you said this was pseudo-profundity, yes. and I think that this this the profundity of pseudo profundity still exists the fact that you can take something as precise as language and make it completely imprecise and incomprehensible and obscurant that's pretty fucking profound if you ask me so i think we need a balance of these things i think that's not going to tell us everything but it is certainly going to open our minds more to the possibility that science can't solve everything all this postmodern stuff is a wedge to help us understand reality better so that we can keep our minds open to other possibilities that we hadn't considered before. The only problem I have is now that we are (laughs) post-post-post-structuralism, what the fuck is next? Like, where do we go next? And so I'm so curious about kind of the edge of philosophy. And we've talked about Thomas Sowell and how He has this beef with these academics and these intellectuals who basically just iterate and reiterate thought processes. And and that itself is is like rot and disease. So where do we go from here? Mm -hmm. But there are other things that I think are quite significant. And to use Baudrillard's ideology of the the phases of simulation, I think where we are at with war, we are now simulating war. Let me first outline what I think as the phases of simulation of war. So war is a, is a representation of a conflict between two people. You take my food, I bash you over the head with a rock. That is reality. That is <laughs> the most basic reality of war. Anything beyond that, where we've got multiple people involved, that is a simulation because we are no longer arguing about the the dispute between two people we've brought other people into the mix the first level of simulation of warfare is when we have more than two people fighting or very early wars that were fought and then the second level of simulation which is the masking of reality or the distortion of reality would be like i think of like the napoleonic wars where treachery was kind of used where they would bring in the cavalry And surprise, we're not actually playing by the rules anymore, so they're distorting the rules of war or what were the perceived rules of war from the first level of simulation. Then the third phase of simulation would be the Iraq war, where George W Bush continued on a war that his father had started. And this war was not actually about what they said it was about. It was hiding the fact that there was no real reason to go to war except for money and power. So there was no actual conflict. They were hiding reality or hiding the fact that there was no reality. And then I think this Ukrainian war is fourth level. Hyper-reality reflects no level of actual warfare whatsoever. There, we haven't seen, we've seen a couple bombings here and there, but they're very strategic. That's like Zelensky would put his troops in a fucking school so that it would appear that the, that the, uh, that the Russians were bombing schools in Ukraine and Zelensky himself is a motherfucking actor. So the whole thing is hyper-reality. Bears no actual resemblance to any real warfare, any real fighting. And it's, it's a media show. This is a good thing because we're not actually going to lose a lot of lives because the, like for example, this fourth level simulation, the biggest consequence of it is the economic and social implications. Russia is fucking done. Like this is gonna teach people, you cannot have war anymore. No war is allowed. You can only have the kind of wars that the powers that be have decided you can have. We will crush you economically, you're fucking done. And so that's a good thing in a sense, because we won't see the level of war we had seen previously, but there are some dangers as well, but I'll let you comment on that first.
1: All I wanna say is uh, Putin should have gone into the woods and fought with a bear and committed suicide himself instead of destroying his entire people and the history of Russia itself that was once a great and vast and noble empire. What a piece of human garbage. <laughs> Period. 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 I've, got, I've got a couple of comments. I'm going to try to string them together. One of them is that uh, even uh, Baudrillard notes that uh, nuclear deterrence itself makes every act of warfare, or at least perceived warfare, into something like a shadow play of something real. So you're doing all these strategic maneuvers, and you're doing things to dissimulate, but ultimately, nuclear deterrence obliterates warfare itself. So no one will go so far as to bring about the absolute collapse of Russia by physical conflict in any of the historically known ways precisely because they have enough nuclear capability to bring about a uh, extinction level events for certainly the species and maybe even much of the planet itself. So we've reached a point where almost everything that you do is kind of bullshitty mm-hmm. because behind that, if something is going to reach a point of collapse, what it would do in the throes of its demise would bring about the death of everybody. So it's like you it's like you cannot do everything you can to stop them, (laughs) and they also cannot execute the war that they're perfectly capable of precisely because of nuclear deterrence.
0: But he relies too heavily upon this, he says the same thing about political figures that because they are simulation fourth level simulation and they're not real and they're not reality, then you can't really kill them. There won't be any more political um, assassinations because the people aren't real politicians themselves unlike the Kennedys and that kind of thing. So he's saying that there will never be nuclear war because of nuclear deterrence and because of the simulation runs so deep that it never touches reality. And to me, you just touched on the most dangerous aspect of postmodern philosophy that nobody talks about. I've never once heard anybody talk about existential risk and postmodern philosophy in the same sentence. But the truth is, if everybody's sitting back going, eh, we ain't going to, nobody's going to hit the button. Nobody's going to hit the button because this isn't real. <laughs> and then some fucking idiot hits the button. It gets real, real quick. It gets fucking real, real. <laughs> if if nothing has any meaning, then I mean, Baudrillard is Hitler. And I'm going to just <laughs> say that because Baudrillard's concept that there is no reality and nuclear war will never happen because we can't differentiate simulation from reality. Baudrillard is responsible for the death of all humans in existence and all future humans. He could very well be the most dangerous man in history.
1: Oh, that's that's interesting. Um, That's
0: a (laughs) soundbite.
1: That is a a Uh (laughs) soundbite. (laughs) You can have him at the top of a pantheon of a bunch of other uh, French postmodernists.
0: And I think this is why Baudrillard plays it, plays it off so much, even touches on nuclear deterrence, because these are the things that butt up against reality and can drag all of his philosophies into the trash real quick.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, and the thing is, you don't know what someone will do when they have nothing left to lose. When you think about whether or not someone will ever actually use uh, the button, um, you might want to think again. This means that you just don't understand what levels of despair and loss uh, and uh, the ultimate realization of death can bring someone who is already potentially suicidal to do. So I I think in this philosophy, very often I I see it as having a, a quite overt color of nihilism.
0: I wonder what Baudrillard would think about long-termism. I think that he would reject it because everything long-term will will only be more and more of a simulation. So long-termism is the idea that we need to be, if we care about anything, we should be thinking about the future and the people that have yet to exist because more people will exist in the future than have ever existed in the past. And so if we care about people and the welfare of humanity, then we should be thinking about future humans and trying to prevent suffering and existential risk for them. It's a very like Bill Gates World Economic Forum neoliberal thing. And we're talking about Baudrillard, who had Marxist criticism, but he was still hugely anti-capitalist and nihilist. Um, and I think neoliberals, they're not nihilists at all. I think. I don't even know what I would, what I would describe neoliberalism as. I, I, I
1: don't know. What, but what hit me the most in kind of what you said is that the people who are more likely to conserve also are more invested in things like family structures. You think much more about the future of humanity when you look into the eyes of your child mm-hmm you're willing to sacrifice in ways for them that are not about you and the immediate. It's a more about a long-term game that looks mm-hmm. at you propagated into an indefinite future where someone that uh, that is related to you directly may never have known exactly who you were, but they're there and the world is there because you had the audacity to imagine a future that was bright enough to bring a child into the world. And I think that very often the people who come up with uh, a lot of these uh, ideas that tear down families and that tend to be more on the liberal side of the spectrum, unfortunately, they're not thinking about the future in the way that you see conservatives doing this. And I think this is why very often the transgenderism that destroys the reproductive capacity entirely, the various forms of uh, sexual practices that are also non-reproductive and non-familial and are largely hedonic, and therefore self-centered, those things are not only the antithesis of the family, they are the antithesis of the future. Of and the so species. All of the species. And that, that this is not a critique of whether or not these things ought to exist. There are lots of complex things to think about those things. But I think you can see a, a pretty stark divide where there is more on the side of people looking to conserve centered around the family and, and its sanctity, and their willingness to think about the long term in the future than you'll see on the opposite side.
0: I think you made a really great point and I think on this conservative liberal spectrum they both end at the same point which is on either end it's the extinction of the species because if we don't progress and we stay stagnant we will basically just uh, be hit by the next extinction level event and if we progress too far beyond all meaning We, everything will lose any value it ever had. And there'll be no point in existing and we will negate ourselves out of existence. And so this is kind of like why I hear people throw around the term neoliberal, like a, like it's such a bad word, like, ew, like this, like anti-normy culture that's out there, like disgusting. You're like, you're like neo-trad-wise. And I'm and like, okay, so be it. I think there is a stopping point in which liberalism ceases to become liberalism anymore. It is illiberal. It is the paradox of tolerance. If we allow everything, somebody's going to fuck it up. Well, and the same yeah, thing on the other side.
1: Yeah. And you see this most specifically on what it is that constitutes a woman.
0: Where do we stop this shit? Like, it's like, why do I have to feel like I keep arguing with the liberals? They're not even liberals anymore. Why do I feel like the conservatives get it? They're like, yep, we know, we know, we know the problems with that. And I have to yell at you later. I'll fucking talk to you later about your bullshit.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's because for, for some people, progress has no end. The thing about some conservative thinking, and I'm, I'm, we're not talking about you know the, the, the special kind of people who are you know still holding snakes and stuff like that, oh. and you know and, and doing all kinds of weird stuff in religious ceremonies, uh, <laughs> <laughs> is that they know enough to say, and this again, this is a Petersonian argument. I, I have to I hate to have to do this, oh but it's, it's you know enough to say this works. Be careful what you're doing when you're fucking with it. Don't just go wherever you think that you ought to go as the end game instantaneously, because you can't tell what the ramifications of the first order transition are, let alone you know the 15th. And and, and our incapability of extrapolating to who knows what consequences is exactly what makes it necessary for us to have again the edge of chaos, a strong foundation with a foot in, in the progress. And then you go, and then maybe you find that this one thing that you did, maybe that wasn't necessarily so good. And maybe we should take a step back or maybe we should reflect on what the meaning of that is and take another tact. But you can't do that if you just say, anything that doesn't allow everything to just fall apart and this is infinite progress is the only thing that's permissible and everything else is Nazism. Because what you don't know is that you might destroy everything that allowed you to have that conversation in the first place it is a testament to the, I guess, the strength of the ideas that we're kind of founded on.
0: Of reality, you mean? Uh,
1: of reality. <laughs> that, that reality permits you to question it and to see where you can go. Right. And imagine what it took to get us here and then try to imagine what it would take to reconstruct it, you have no idea how hard it it was to get to where we are in the first place.
0: I love this discussion about postmodernism and conservatism. And I think sex is another thing that you and I have talked about as being in the fourth level (laughs) like like sex right now is, is a fourth level simulation. And I was talking about this with a friend over drinks while I was in Portland. And I was like, sex is no longer real. And she's like, what do you mean? And I'm like, well, if you think about what sex is sex, the initial reality of it is procreation. You know, we think about like there were hermaphroditic worms or all these things that could exist initially when sex first evolved to recreate the species. So the first level of simulation is a representation of reality. It's having sex not to reproduce is like when birth control was invented and we decided we were going to be fucking without having to. <laughs> <laughs> consequence thereof. And so that's the first level simulation. Second level simulation of sex is the distortion of reality. So that would be pornography, which is, is distorting what we think of as sex because it's a false representation most often and then the third level is obviously to cover up that there is no sex so this would be like when i think about it it's like demolition man you know you you ever seen demolition man <laughs> anyway, wait,
1: yeah or whatever yeah <laughs> <laughs>
0: When Stallone and uh, Sandra Bullock put on the headsets, they put like the sensors on and they're like, okay, we're going to, we're going to have sex now. And they basically, he, it turns it on. It's just a bunch of flashes and probably chemical signals in the brain. It's basically, so you don't have sex.
1: Ew. Ew. Sex is like so gross. It's like fluids and stuff. Like, ew.
0: Ew. But I think (laughs) we skipped right into the uh, fourth level of simulation and that is, kind of what all of these uh, ding-dongs are describing what sexual experiences should be like. No person who has ever had sex is having sex like that.
1: Okay, so- um...
0: Like polyamory, for example. Like anybody, and this is more of a relationship thing, but anybody who endorses polyamory, they're not living in reality. The reality is they talk about, oh, it requires a lot of communication to to be in a polyamorous relationship or a polycule i'm like bitch I, you can't get one man to communicate like <laughs> and can you imagine a bunch of hens
1: <laughs> i would I, I would just say you can't get you can't get one woman to say anything meaningful <laughs> 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 some sexist ass shit coming out your mouth woman
0: right, i love the misogyny like <laughs> yeah hey,
1: i i massage the misogyny <laughs>
0: definitely a masseuse of misogyny that's your new nickname the masseuse of misogyny that's right (laughs) but it's it's no longer bearing any resemblance to reality so i went to dan savage's human pornography hump film festival twice and
1: wait, wait, wait a second so i i actually attended that not you did
0: it. i, I challenged you I, I, I went
1: once you challenged me this was pre, this was
0: <laughs> <not> pre- <laughs> <pre-gism>. <laughs> you rose to the occasion
1: <laughs> I, 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 I i did i haven't even told you that story but anyway it's um it was interesting
0: <laughs> <laughs> but basically they show a bunch of short films they're amateur films and they're very out there on the edge of um kind of sexuality and not normal, not vanilla, not what they describe as vanilla sex. But if you look at any of the trans porn that was out there, it in no way resembles the vanilla sex.
1: By the way, the best movie of the entire festival was Pops Corn. Uh, So you guys need to go to this. Uh, In fact, I I challenge anybody to watch this and... uh, well, and survive because it's, right. it's,
0: like, it's keep creepy. your eyes open. You cannot. Uh, <laughs> you have to watch.
1: Yeah. If, if you don't wind up with a wild uh, astigmatism after watching this film, uh, you're a hero. Just oh, so.
0: I just don't even <laughs> understand why it's called sounding. It doesn't even make sense. Like unless it's about the sounds you make when that's happening.
1: Yeah, I sounding right. the
0: alarm. And right. so that's what I mean by we're in this fourth level of simulation. It's mm-hmm. this is nothing to do. This is just because there's a penis. It's like, this has nothing to do with sex. Though.
1: So much of what is happening in what you see, at least, from human sexuality in its endless contortions and, and, and permutations now, is really... A, a, a
0: <laughs> it's the Illuminati symbol. It's so the, it, is,
1: it is also known <laughs> as the Illuminati <laughs> You may or may not be cutting that out. Um, so, is really a replacement for what has been lost in intimacy, and so we yeah. see more extreme behaviors, perhaps beginning as something like you know, like BDSM and then you know, choking and various things like that, and then getting to the point where it's
0: asphyxiation. Yeah, fetish
1: things that could bring you uh, almost to the threshold of death. In order to achieve something like the, the pleasure and sensuality that could come from a loving expression of uh, a loving expression of, of sex, because we don't have that much as much connection, because we're seeking it more and more in various levels of simulacra, the need for extreme activities has taken the place of intimacy. So you'll do things that you think is really self-expression, but really is something more like debasement in hopes of finding acceptance in the real world mm-hmm. because you can't find connection for the self that is hiding underneath the uh, the exaggerated sexuality.
0: I think this is an a con, I think everything that's happening here is a consequence of liberalism. And the way I think of pro- progressivism and progress in general is that we are intended to go through cycles where we cycle from conservatism, authoritarianism all the way through to kind of liberal Libertarianism and everywhere in between, and I think sexuality is a, is a is a really interesting way of looking at that because you know there's a meme right there's the Chad there's kind of like the trad wife or the Chad and the yes Chad right and so this for so long was heteronormative this was the ideal in a lot of people's minds for some reason and so now they're trying to deconstruct this hierarchy and find themselves along the path like where are you on the like the neo trad wife chad spectrum like right like where are you so so everybody's trying to find themselves in these memes, so to speak and like where am i who am i and because we have fractalized into a million different pieces it's really hard to find someone to relate to because we can all be something different now and so in that search for kind of like sameness in a sea of difference, we are completely losing meaning and we're going to extremes to find closeness and relatability. And I think right. that if we, we think like, okay, we went from like this hierarchy, so let's go all the way out and see if we can find something all the way on the edge and maybe then we'll, we'll feel close again or something. So I think right. we've just overshot. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we got too excited.
1: I got way, way too excited with this.
0: There are so many things we could put on the simulation spectrum. So like to say that Baudrillard is wrong, or even to say, I mean, reel back that he's the most dangerous man in history is pretty extreme. It's. You
1: know, I love saying that things are wrong, so I'm glad you agree with me.
0: Yeah, I don't, though. I, I you know, I'm much more of a postmodernist on this end of the spectrum because I do see value in in these discrete moments, it's helping us to determine and to explore things that we never would have really questioned or explored before. Let's just not drown in it. Like, how do we keep our heads above water or come back up for air while we're pushing the limits on these things?
1: We are using sex as a proxy for self. And so the degree to which I'm willing to do certain kinds of things casts a really wide net for the obscure and strange thing And says, I want this instantaneously rather than allowing it to evolve, perhaps out of intimacy. So I would say if you start with something fundamental, arguably, if you start with something like vanilla, you can add little spices and and, and so forth and sprinkles and whipped cream and um, so you can sprinkle all this stuff in there and then come up with this thing that you've co-evolved. So it, it's almost like you're asking people to accept this extreme thing in order to even get to know you rather than getting to know you and then allowing the, the maybe the, the permutations to kind of co-evolve within the relationship such that you arrive at something intimate that came from somewhere deeper. So you can get to the end point rather than having to go through all the stages of exploration and testing and so forth to get to a point where the trust developed from your sexuality allows you to get to this imagined endpoint,
0: I think what you're talking about is coming from a conservative perspective. So like what what you're talking about is vanilla ice cream with chocolate chips and whipped cream, like, okay. But most people who are gonna be critical of what you're saying are like, yeah, but I wanted tuna fish soup as my dessert. Okay, but
1: that's that's kind of dumb. Get to the tuna fish soup. But
0: that's dumb. In your perspective, they're looking at it as, well, maybe I'm gonna start with like tuna fish flavoring and olive oil, and then I'm gonna make it into a cream. And so maybe they're gonna reach this thing that you're calling intimacy or the final form of kind of what you're looking to develop, but they're gonna reach it from a deconstructed place. They're gonna go to the absolute edge of what would even be called sex. To coming back into kind of like maybe they, maybe these people who are, you know, the whole like um, Gen Z thing, which is like, what's your kink? Maybe that's how they start <clears throat> is from like the absolute naked dopamine release and kind of reel back into the more intimate rather than starting from a place of, of no intimacy, but growing the intimacy. Maybe they're thinking that they're going to the most intimate thing first. And then kind of peeling back the layers and seeing if they want to be just normal with each other.
1: I still think that idea reinforces at least some of what I was saying earlier about how the the extremism is a surrogate for intimacy.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right about that analysis.
1: And in that way, I almost feel like getting those things because you can get those things because you can ask for them directly. And because you didn't have to do something and try something and maybe be a little transgressive because you started at the extreme of what you can imagine that was given to you by somebody who also themselves may have not gone through the layers of intimacy to get to the point of this kind of expression. But I guess, I guess what I'm saying is that you're mistaking that for intimacy and you're mistaking that for self-expression and you're borrowing that for something from someone else.
0: I don't know. I don't know that that's I true I don't because the
1: kinks were given to you nobody starts off going look I'm a virgin right but I happen to know that I have this wild kink that includes you know like like the bones of animals that you know my grandma recently <laughs> ate and but I, afterward I'm gonna make a soup out of it and feed it to her that is so bizarre so it's <laughs> fucking bizarre but there's no way that somebody who has never even kissed someone who has never had an orgasm in someone else's presence, is going to know that that chicken bone fetish is the thing that they want to do that most eminently expresses their essence.
0: People who are younger have started at the fringe and will work their way back to center. But I think people who are maybe my age to your age or older have started in the vanilla place and they have gone more out towards the fringe. But if you think about like when I was a kid, I'm going to expose myself here, unfortunately. (laughs) Um, When I was a kid, it was like, as long as there's no penetration, I think this is probably where it started. How we've gotten to this place is the conservatism and puritanical society has suppressed actual sex. And so people, this is sex is like coming out all angles now. It's you can do everything except this. And they're like, Everything? So the thing about sexuality is that it is an existential issue. If we lose sexuality and the ability to reproduce, which we won't, we can, we can reproduce through test tube babies, if need be. So, but, but the point is, is that if we fuck around with sexuality and a thing that is the foundation of our species, uh, we are going to have a different species is all I'm saying. Who's to say that what everything we're doing now isn't just the next step in our own evolution? You're trying to hold on to kind of the current status of humanity, but humanity's evolution is on a spectrum, I think. Some of us are in way different places than other people, mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually, or whatever. And we are all in a different place. So, what we may be doing and fucking around with things like sexuality and physical experiences is we're we're pushing. We're pushing on evolution, and so mm-hmm. conservatives. This is probably why conservatives have such a fear of all these things. I don't fear it necessarily because we are tethered to reality. Um, whatever this reality is, we are tethered to it in a lot of ways. So I don't fear the whole like you love saying Petersonian argument of like oh the you know yeah. meaning is God. I don't. I don't fear that because I know we will most likely continue to exist if most people have a handle on reality reality yes. just might change quite a bit and and who we are might change quite a bit
1: well I, I I agree with with some of that but I think it's it's not that it's not that things can't change but I think that the rate, and this is this is an old, uh, this is an old argument, and I, I couldn't even quote the source, but basically, the rate of sociological change exceeds the rate of biological change. And so the problem is that we will be tethered to a biology that is primed to respond to things, and that will go on for generations so vast that we cannot live uh, too long, too far away from the things that define us. It's going to have to be a kind of progression that once again, uh, maybe you can learn, maybe we can learn as a species to respond to hyperreality in the way that we respond to the real and stop experiencing the ennui of disconnection, but um, that's not going to happen in our lifetimes. It's not going to be, uh, yeah, well, certainly not me. fuck that. Um, the, 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 the real is, imagine all the senses, all the sensory receptors involved in capturing even a single moment in the real world, not even close to happening in a non-meat space. But, you know, it's not going to happen uh, for your daughter. It's not going to happen for so long because the rate of biological change is so slow.
0: But technological change is outpacing.
1: Well, the technology, again though, is, I think, mediating the sociological change, but it is not sufficiently grounding us in the biology. It's like it's taking it, the level of abstraction is diluting, hollowing out the meaningfulness of, of real experience at a rate that we're not suited to adapt to. And that's the thing that technology and, uh, and ideology does that we cannot do at a, at a biological level. And the more disconnected those things are, the more alienated we will feel, I think.
0: Yeah, I think that's the biggest risk. I think that is the, the crux of it. That's the, that's the pit of nihilism that we can fall into in, as a species if we're not careful. I think there are plenty of pitfalls and places where we can lose ourselves. But yeah. I, I, I choose to remain an optimist and continue on doing the things that I think are important. Mm -hmm. Fighting the fight that I think is essential.
1: Like having this conversation.
0: Yeah. Yeah. We're regular old fucking heroes here.
1: (laughs) Regular fucking humans trying to figure out what's real.
0: (laughs) (laughs) The anti-Baudrillardian air force here. There's so so much. There's so much to talk about here. Um, We could go on and on forever. (laughs) I don't know how to end this
1: every sentence almost is rife with something that you can extrapolate you know, a, a thesis from and, and, and get a degree in gender studies with. So if you look at the very beginning of the text itself, the very first statement, the simulacrum is never what hides the truth. It is truth that hides the fact that there is none. The simulacrum is true. And it's attributed to Ecclesiastes. The book starts off with a simulacrum it starts off telling you that something is profoundly amiss with the world. The text itself is pure simulation and it reaches a level of abstraction so total that it lacks any tangible physical reference with the language that it uses that would anchor it to the reality of the world. It therefore does not describe reality and it's lost in a hermeneutic of hyperreality. Book
0: itself,
1: I have no idea what you just said. So
0: right. And so I don't either. So,
1: <laughs> so, so what I'm saying is the book, the, the book itself begins begins with a simulacrum. Yes. And it ends as a simulacrum. And that this ultimately is the the teaching of the text that hyperreality is not real. And it's an interesting way of exploring things like we said. Mm-hmm. but it doesn't have any physical reference and because it doesn't it doesn't describe anything meaningful and that's why when you read these things you walk away feeling hollowed out like, <laughs> it's missing something so fucking important that um, <laughs> you, <laughs> you might want to just put it away and go back to the real world because uh, I'm leaving this motherfucker behind and I ain't going back <laughs> that, that, that's it that's my statement Hopefully,
0: out season one Period! (laughs) Period, motherfuckers!
1: (laughs) No, no, wait a second. There's more. Oh, disgusting. Mm. Period. 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 Period.
0: Period. (laughs) Period. Period.